From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission. My name is Clifton Harris, and I'm with the Urban League of Middle Tennessee, and I want to welcome everybody to Just a Conversation, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And joining me today are an esteemed guest uh, list of panelists, and I would like now to uh, ask them to uh, introduce themselves as we are here in the reading room. So I'll start to my right uh, with Lee, if you would introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name is Lee Myers. I work with the Nashville Promise Zone as an affordable housing VISTA coordinator. Uh, I'm originally from um, Sumner County. Uh, my life, I experienced housing insecurity, moved around at least once every school year. Um, I got interested in housing justice and housing security in college and with my experience, um, I started with my personal experience, yeah. My name is Antonio Young. I'm actually a Medicare benefit advisor here with over 25 years of account management experience, uh, co-founder of uh, the Change We Seek local foundation, and also um, co-author of a book that's uh, coming out soon. Hi, my name is uh, Welton Pride. I am a recent graduate from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where I majored in marketing, entrepreneurship, and minored in Africana studies. Uh, I too am a AmeriCorps VISTA, uh, working with Lee, uh, you know, with us, a housing coordinator, as well as the Envision coordinator, uh, specifically working with infrastructure for you know, Nashville residents uh, in the Promise Zone. So it's great to be here, part of the conversation. I want to thank you all for joining us. So in our uh, opening statement, we have, um, chapter 18 uh, of the book of how to be an anti-racist. And so today we are discussing that chapter uh, from Dr. Kendall's book and all about uh, housing. Um, and so let's uh, jump right into the conversation uh, on a roundtable discussion uh, from chapter 18. And I was just um, uh, elated at how he use the analogy of cancer uh, to address racism. And I'd like to get you all's thoughts and your takeaways you now from, from that. You know? So since I started to my right last time, how about I start over here to my <laughs> left with you this time? All right, sounds good. Um, I definitely see the analogy between racism and cancer uh, because as uh, you know, he's, he's, he stated in the book is that uh, with, with cancer, you're able to catch it possibly early. You know, there are different stages of which you can take it. And if you look at the history of where racism came into play in the 15th century, it's kind of somewhat in its still earlier stages of catching it as we look at the world history view. And so it was really interesting to hear how he compared the, the steps we can take in order to help with chemotherapy and, uh, you, know, you know, removing the tumor through surgery and the different ways we can treat cancer with looking at the policies of racism and how we can uh, help affect that change. So I, that was one of the biggest takeaways I, I, I took. Oh, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine an America and all that doesn't look, you know, sees, sees color but doesn't put people in compartments and stuff and all around I mean, race and stuff? That's crazy. That you would know, be just phenomenal, it wouldn't would it? Be. It definitely would yeah. be. So, yeah. Antonio. Yes. Well, I think it's, it's just so pertinent. Just, that comparison to cancer and just the, the malignancy and, and how it spreads, it's, it's so how interdependent it is. Just, uh, just discussions of everything from, you know, financial literacy to housing, 
it, it's so systemic and because of the way it spreads and as, as Alternate mentioned, it's about the treatment of it too. So that's, that's another big issue as far as how we tackle that as society and just, you know, and, you know, as a community, so. Right, and um, I found the cancer metaphor apt, specifically with the deadliness of it. Um, racism is especially deadly uh, to people living in the inner cities in housing that is not um, kept up to par. Um, if you look at the history of Nashville, uh, specifically um, when the urban renewal came, um, you had, um, because of the industrial growth post-Civil War, you had um, overcrowding, um, you had housing that was neglected and concentrated heavily in black areas. And then with um, the way racism played out in terms of the solution, um, it also ended up demolishing, displacing these people, losing their land, and a lot of uh, negative, um, deadly effects on the communities uh, that were affected by that. Oh, absolutely, and that's the perfect lead into the next question because I was I was struck in the book, you know, when when he said that um, racism is the source of racist uh, is a source of racist ideas, which comes from self-interest. And so, can you speak to that that self-interest that generates the, the the racist ideas as it relates to housing? Right. Yeah. So with housing specifically, people tend to think in dollars and cents, specifically in terms of their property values. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Kendi talks about is that there's no such thing as race neutral policy. And, and so these dollars and cents were shaped and uh, many are sort of uh, seen through the lens of, of a racialized in uh, society. So you have, um, say, a rural exurban community like White House, Tennessee, um, I recently received a petition uh, on my doorstep from these people and they're talking about this duplex development just happening down the road. Um, the neighborhood was zoned for low residential, um, sparse um, um, zoning and these residents wanted to keep it that way. They, they were opposed to the duplex. So you have this community that was sort of facilitated by the interstate. Its growth is facilitated by the interstate. It's uh, growing because of Nashville's rapid growth um, and sort of sort of shaped by the history of racism in Nashville and Tennessee. Um, and they want to keep their community exclusive. So in terms of self-interest, um, the exclusivity of that community in their minds is what's contributing to the rising property values. And so they see, uh, say White House people, they see some, an area like Madison, Gillettsville, or Nashville as undesirable. Um, and it's largely because of the history of racism and the association with black people in those areas. And all that happened under the self-interest of urban renewal. Wow. Ur yeah. Urban renewal and what white, a policy. white property, white property yeah. owners. Yeah, yeah. Antonio? Well, I think he hits it on the head as far as talking about that because housing is such a crucial part of just wealth building. And that part of it with, you mentioned about redlining. And many times when that population gets marginalized, Again, it spreads, it's kind of like that cancer because it ties into, you know, as far as net worth of that, that family, ties into, I mean, the education part of it. I mean, job attainment, education, it all, and then even to, for example, you know, community schooling. Many times you went to schools in that community where you were kind of 
marginalized and, and, and compressed over time. So again, it, it's, I think it's, it's key. It, and the housing is just such a huge part of it. And as we mentioned earlier about uh, the you know, practice of redlining, as far as, and in fact, I think you mentioned the undesirable. It's crazy, it's understand it, which starting in the 1930s with that, there were four different categories and hazardous was one of them. And when you're in that hazardous category, it drove down property values, which many times is where, you know, that, those communities, communities of color were really isolated. So definitely, it's huge. Yeah, and here we are some 90 years later and we're still feeling the impact and all of those racist policies and all around redlining that, that happened and all in our community. So in the book, the author uh, makes a statement that I want to read now to, to you all, okay? Because um, he states now that the source of racist ideas is self-interest. But then he goes on to say, the history of racist ideas is the history of powerful policymakers erecting racist policies out of self-interest, then producing racist ideas to defend a rational, rational, rationale of inequitable effects to policy. While everyday people consume those racist ideas, which in turn sparks ignorance and hate. So the question that I wanna ask each of you is, so does racist policies lead to racist ideas? And if so, how can we urge people to focus on changing policy? So who wants to go first? I'll start in the middle with Antonio. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Good. Well, I think um, a lot of it does hinge on starting policy because, as I said, a lot of it is self-serving. And a lot of times, I mean, you can look at everything from the tax system to, I mean, a lot of other things. Um, many other things are, are designed for that, for that self-interest. So many times we're going to have to push not only collectively, you know, in the, well, not only individually, but collectively as a community, you know, for change. In the meantime, it's a change of um, rules, change of requirements. I mean, since we're talking some about the historical part of it, I mean, I know after, for example, World War II and, you know, the formation of the GI Bill, many times soldiers and communities of color were excluded from a lot of those. So as wealth, wealth built, it was, it was systemic. And matter of fact, it was, it was something that, that was institutionalized. So again, it's finding ways um, through, I mean, we're, we have a democracy, it, it's, we have to go through the channels to change that. And it's, um, I think that's a really key part of, you know, of change and it's gotta be a societal change, so. Right, so um, I agree, um, racist ideas do tend to emerge out of self-interest uh, of rich, powerful, uh, in this case, white elites. Um, Dr. Kennedy himself um, mentions um, about the construction of race that sort of emerged um, in uh, the 16th century, um, right when colonialism in Europe, Europe was starting to venture outside of the continent um, uh, via sea. Um, and so, but I do think that it's not as simple as to say it's racist policy and racist ideas. I think both are heavily interconnected. And while you can say racist policy had to start in the 15th century, I feel like with succession of time, um, those two have sort of become merged together, kind of. And so I, I think you can't really talk about policy change without cultural change. And who needs to be able to see um, um, racism, right? And it's um, white people with power, they need to be able to see racism 
um, and, and they need to be able to align their self-interest with the interests of the communities they reside in. And so for me, um, it's um, how do we get to the anti-racist policy? Part of it is, um, of course, changing that value orientation where people's self-interest does align with the community interests. And then another part is, um, and the more critical part is actually um, um, bringing down those disparities and making sure uh, black people have an equal uh, footing uh, as white people in America do. Man, you speaking like you done lived that. You don't walk that a time or two. That's good. Mm. Definitely, I need to stop going after Lee. He's having the, the best answers, but uh, definitely what he said is like our founding fathers, the people that constructed these policies, this this way of government, were slave owning white men, and you know the the, the basis of slavery was economic in its base, and so self interest, like Lee also alluded to uh, earlier, is a property value. You want to own as much property, you want to own as much wealth and pass that on to your, your next generation. And black people, because of the lack of ownership of anything, you know, from the history of slavery and set forth, you know, have, have not been able to accumulate wealth to pass on. And so we continually are able to, you know, be dictated where we can and can't live and what we can and can't do because we don't have the economic feasibility that a lot of these policies have escaped us to, to, to not be able to have. And so definitely what, what Lee was saying is that we have to look at the economic side and, and as far as what that does to our cultural base and what that makes us to uh, associate black people to the lowest base strata in society. So we have to relook at that in our media and our, our journalism and everything that we do, uh, how that's predicated on that, that, that fallacy that's been created, so. So stay with that just for a, for a second. So how do we move beyond just treating the, the, the symptoms and get at addressing the policies that is holding people down, holding people back? Uh, I mean, that's something that, you know, during my time, I, I actually, I, I worked in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. for a brief period of time. And that's something that they're talking about as far as the case for reparations, mm -hmm. you know, and this is study for actually understanding what is the true value of, you know, a slave back in the day or what is the true, you know, uh, economic value that they were able to, you know, propel into the, the economy. And how can we, what is that value uh, to, in this present day? So how can we able to give black people and allow black people to, have these funds to work for themselves in order to develop their communities. And you know, notice community, not a neighborhood. So where you have shops, where you have you know, uh, you know, economic drivers, you know, where you can be able to teach and talk about these things and learn about financial literacy, learn about these core uh, competencies that make up who you are in the economic base of America. You know, black people, we just haven't had that, that opportunity a lot of the time. And so that's something that's very policy intuitive that a lot of uh, they're working on as well as a lot of localities are. So definitely have to look at the, the economic and looking at as far as reparations and things of that nature. So Antonio, 50 years ago, black people had a higher home ownership rate than we do now. How do we address some of the, the, the policies that, need, that we need to, in order to, to give people access to capital, give people access to wealth? I mean, it's, it's kind of a multi-pronged approach. We wish it was just one magic pill that could do it. But I think, uh, as we mentioned, a lot of it has to be through um, policy, be it you know the FHA, what, whatever channels that you do to, to, to finance it and to be able to uh, acquire those mortgages. Not only that, I mean, there's a lot of other things as far as predatory lending, other things that come into it. So a big part of it is really affecting the policies, but honestly, another big portion of it is actually what we do as a community. And I believe there's a lot of organizations, you know, 
within the community, especially even within Nashville, that are affecting a lot of change. I, I mentioned earlier, actually my family and I, we had started the foundation Change We Seek, and actually one of our first disbursements was actually to the Urban League. And again, doing a lot of things in the community to help rectify that and, and bring that, that education level and awareness level up. And also make sure people have access to those you know, type of programs. And a lot of times information is key. I think that's that's a huge part of it as far as disseminating disseminating that information and really collectively kind of educating the community on what's not only available but you know sometimes you have to make new inroads into it. So I, again, I think it's it's more of a collective um, approach. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so Lee, you know the author talks about you no know, cancer and you know how it you know, the disease, it metastasizes itself you know, to other parts of, of the body. So, and, and we have to treat, you have to treat it with the arsenal of what we have, you know, with chemo and radiation and even to the point you know, of, of surgery. So when it comes to those policies, you know, that have um, held people back you now from home ownership, what do we have to do and all to get rid of the, 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 the metastasized and all racist policies and all that has kept people out of home ownership? Right. So um, with home ownership specifically, the FFJ was um, um, a huge impetus for segregating um, residentially um, um, uh, racial groups. And so um, you can see it in Nashville, you can see it in North and East Nashville and closer in the inner city. Um, um, you see heavy concentrations of black people. In the south uh, part of Nashville, you see heavy concentrations of Latino and black people. Um, you see displacement um, in um, North and East Nashville too of gentrification, um, sort of this young professional class sort of migrating back to Nashville, where to its city, so to speak. So with all of this growth, um, uh, black people were moving to um, Lebanon, Antioch, towards the southeastern part. Of, of, of outside of the city and on the outskirts of the city. And so it's not just that, you know, these barriers have kept people from ownership. They're still there and they're still keeping people and they're displacing people um, who are renters. If you're on the property owning side, you're getting a nice deal of gentrification. You could probably uh, freeze your taxes if you uh, reach a certain age or you could sell your property um, if you can't afford to pay your taxes. I think um, in terms of what needs to happen is we need to design policies that are aimed at integration, that are aimed at wealth building, and uh, are sort of focused on those lines. And then we need to do it in a way that brings in the vast resources of the federal government um, with community organizations. Because the federal government has come in before and has, with, like with urban renewal, ended up displacing people. So there needs to be a considerable amount of community input and community direction in what we do with uh, federal monies and federal uh, resources. Awesome. In the few minutes that we have left, I want to ask each of you this final question. Do you believe that eliminating racism is possible? If so, why? If not, why not? Uh, that's, a, that's a very tough uh, question. Um, I feel like, not in my lifetime, 
you know, it's something that we have to, you know, continue to plant seeds so that our children and children's children may grow the, uh, enjoy that shade. And so we have to start with the policies. We have to start with the cultural mindset. We have to start with uh, the education society and be, begin to, to, to understand what the root of, you know, the root of racism, what it truly is, what it is a compass and how it's weaved into the fabrics of America. And from that point forward, we can start to actually have the conversations on what you know, what we're doing now, what are the next steps? What, are, what can we do to enact change to help so that, you know, we, do, we can live in this, you know, this, this uh, acceptance uh, society where everyone is, is based and judged on the, the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Yeah, so I think it can be eliminated. Uh, like Welton said, probably not in my lifetime. I think we have to realize um, that um, particularly in white communities, people are socialized and educated to be racist, even though they may not quite be aware of it. Um, um, I remember in my public textbooks, we were taught that racism ended once Martin Luther King gave, the I gave, gave a dream speech. Um, that's far from the truth. And so it's also a point in the curriculum, especially in these white exurban schools, um, where um, they need to be more conscious about race and about their privilege and about the communities that sort of are propped up on um, interstate travel and uh, white flight. And so I think we can, I just think it's a long, arduous process. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think, I don't think it can be totally eliminated completely. Any, unfortunately, anytime you, you weaponize what's different from a group or race or anything else, it, you know, it, it, can, it can fester. But one thing I do think with continued you know, integration with, um, really mainstreaming a lot of the, the different programs that are out there, I, I do think it can definitely get a lot better than it is and, and you know, can evolve from here, so definitely. So I'd like to leave each of you with this then. If not now, when? And um, I think we have to figure out now who or what groups are in power and then figure out how do we address anti-racist policies in order to make things you know, better. And I think in the book, the author does a very good job of making some recommendations on, on how to do this and stuff. You know? So uh, I wanna thank each of you, you know, for being here today. And thank you, you know, for uh, your insight you know, on, on the topic you know, that we had. Uh, and I know I got a lot out of it. And so I hope our listening audience um, gets as much as I have out of it. No, thank you so much. No. Just Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive producers Sarah Imran, Mark Etherly, Barbara Gunlardi, and Bob Ferrissey. Directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmid, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit JustConversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at JustConversate, on Instagram at JustConversaciones, or on Facebook at JustConversate.